0: We've bounced around the Bible a good bit this year, mainly we've been in Acts, and we're going to return to 1 Corinthians now, and probably stick with that more or less through the summer. Um, Obviously open to what the, the Spirit may lead otherwise. We return to 1 Corinthians, where we left off in August of 2017, we finished chapter 9, and we return to chapter 10. That'll be our passage today, but let's pray together before we enter into it. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for being such a good father to us and letting us be your children. This feels to me, as I've been studying this passage this week, like like a father drawing me near as a son, and hopefully this morning us near as children, and just giving us some very helpful, practical teaching. And I pray that you would help us to be attentive to it, that you would help us to receive it, be transformed by it and how we see ourselves in this world. And that we would genuinely be helped to move forward as Christians because of it. So please speak to us now. Please open us up to your word and open your word up to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I do believe that the message God has for us from this passage today is going to be extremely helpful to each and every one of us, extremely useful and practical. And I believe that because I know something about you. I know something about each and every one of you. I know that each one of you struggles with the temptation to sin. Now, how do I know this? Have I been following you? watching through your window of your home? Have I been swiping your phone when you're not looking, looking at your text history, checking your website browser history? Have I been interviewing people in your lives? No, I know this to be true because the Bible just plainly says it's true. Every Christian struggles with the temptation to sin. Every single one. Every single one of you and me Everybody that you know who is a Christian, even the spiritual giants, the people that you look up to the most as Christians, struggle with the temptation to sin. It's just a fact of life in this fallen world for us as God's people. Now, I need you to think about your particular unique struggle with the temptation to sin. What is it for you? Your weakness toward temptation may not be the same as the person sitting beside you. So bring it, pull it up on the screen of your mind and keep it there throughout the sermon because I think this will really be helpful for you. So what is your particular temptation? The Corinthian church struggled with the temptation to sin. If you remember our path through this book, this was a deeply troubled church and they had all kinds of issues with sin. And they too struggled with the temptation to sin, but what was unique about them is that they didn't think they had a struggle with the temptation to sin. They didn't think they were vulnerable to the temptation to sin. And that's the problem that Paul's addressing in this passage. And the first thing he points out, and what we'll see first as we ease into the passage, even in the best circumstances, God's people can fall. Even in the best circumstances, God's people can fall. Now let's read just the first five verses. And I, I imagine there'll be some things in here that, aren't, that don't immediately make sense to you. Then that's okay. We're gonna talk through them. But listen and see if you can pick out a key word. There's a key word in these first five verses. See if, see if you can find it. Paul writes, "'For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, "'that our fathers were all under the cloud.'" Now, did you pick out a key word in there? All. Maybe it wasn't as obvious as I thought it would be. All. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All drank the same spiritual drink. What Paul is trying to point out to them is that this generation, he's talking about the generation of God's people, the ancient Israelites who went through the exodus. Remember the Exodus when they were powerfully, by God's mighty right hand, they were saved from slavery in Egypt through miraculous signs and wonders and brought out of that into salvation under the guidance of Moses. This, for the Israelites, would have been their greatest generation. You know how we use that term as Americans for the generation that lived through the Depression and then World War II, call them the the greatest generation? This was Israel's greatest generation. They went through the defining greatest acts of God among them. And they all experienced all these things. They all experienced the cloud. That's what he says there. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, in verse 1, that our fathers were all under the cloud. You know, when God led them out of slavery in Egypt, he guided them by a, a giant cloud during the daytime. and It was a fire by night. So they were divinely guided by this huge miracle cloud. And they all experienced that. They all passed through the sea. Remember when they escaped Egypt, they're on their way and they made it to the sea and the Egyptian army, the Pharaoh changed his mind and the Egyptian army was coming after them to kill them and drag them back into slavery. And they didn't have boats or jet skis or anything. And God miraculously split the water of the sea Thousands of Israelites escaped on dry land through the sea and then they turned around and the Egyptian army was coming through and God released the water back and they all drowned. They all experienced that. They all walked through that dry ground between the split sea. It's crazy, but they all experienced it. Then he goes on to say, they all experienced a kind of baptism in verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's kind of figurative language of saying that they they were brought from slavery through the cloud and the sea into a new identity. They were no longer identified with Pharaoh as his slaves, but now they're identified with Moses as God's people. They all experienced that transition. After 400 years, they experienced that transition. They all experienced it. They all experienced this supernatural sustenance Verse three, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now this is mysterious and difficult to understand and it deserves its own sermon. God fed them miraculously with manna from heaven, miracle bread from heaven. He satisfies, satisfied their thirst with miracle water that came out of a rock and in some way, this sustained them, even on the spiritual level, in a way that prefigured Jesus Christ himself and what we experienced with the bread and the cup. Now, we don't have to fully understand all that to get the main thrust of this passage, though. They all experienced all this awesome, awesome stuff that God did for them. And then look at verse 5, the word it begins with. They all experienced this, nevertheless, nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They experienced all this miraculous work of God. Nevertheless, they fell into, as we'll see in the next paragraph, idolatry, sexual sin, and grumbling. Now, you might feel like, well, that wouldn't have happened to us. If that was Doolin's Grove that got released from Egypt and saw all these amazing signs and wonders, we never would have then fallen into idolatry, sexual sin, and grumbling in a million years. Well, the whole point of this passage is, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. God's people have always had a rich history of falling away from him even immediately after he's done something awesome for them. The implication of this passage is that we as a church, we could this spring experience a huge revival. We could see people converted to Jesus Christ, people give their lives to Christ. We could every Sunday this spring have the baptistry full and be baptizing people. God could bring from all over the community people who are, who are hungry for the gospel and they could be saved through our ministry. And we could become a mega church. This spring, it could happen, theoretically. We, we could fill up this sanctuary and I could preach four services on a Sunday morning and it still not be enough to satisfy all the people that God had brought to himself through our ministry. And so I'd be projected onto screens in elementary schools all over the country. Theoretically, that could happen. And still, this summer, we could fall into idolatry, sexual sin, and grumbling. There's great precedent for that happening among God's people. You, as an individual, you could have the greatest quiet time you've ever experienced. This week, let's say it's tomorrow morning, you have your quiet time, and it's the Best quiet is like Jesus Himself came in and cradled you like a baby and whispered truth to you. And you felt so secure in your faith and you felt so invigorated in your allegiance to Christ as your Lord. And you're seeing things in the Word you've never seen before. And tomorrow afternoon, you could fall into idolatry or sexual sin or grumbling. We have a great propensity to fall into temptation. God's people have always had this. And so Paul's point to the Corinthians and then now to us is, don't ever think you're invulnerable. Don't ever think that you are above or beyond temptation. Because you're not. We're all vulnerable to it in this world until Jesus Christ comes back and brings the kingdom into full effect. So rather than thinking we're above temptation, let's learn from their examples. That's his second point. The first point, even in the best circumstances, God's people can fall. Second point with the beginning of the next paragraph, let's learn from their examples. Look at verse six. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he outlines in the preceding proceeding verses, three pitfalls that Israel fell into, and he felt that these would be very helpful for the Corinthians to remember, and it was recorded in Scripture by the Holy Spirit, and so obviously it's going to be helpful for us to remember these as well. I want you to think of these pitfalls, what he is outlining here, like those crosses by the side of the road. You know, you're driving down a country road, sort of a windy road, you come to a particularly sharp curve and there's a, a cross there by the road with some old flowers on it or maybe like an old teddy bear there and you could quickly out of the corner of your eye you make it out there's a name on it and you know that that's there because someone died in a car accident there someone wasn't being careful and they flew off the road and they got in a wreck and they died and that cross is sitting there as a memorial to that person but also as a reminder to everybody else who's traveling that curve to be careful And if you're like me, you do. You realize, well, somebody fell off the road here and it could happen to me, so I'm going to slow down a little bit and be a little more careful. That's sort of what these are for us. These are those crosses by the side of the road. So let's look at these three pitfalls together. The first one, do not be idolaters. Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were, some of those ancient Israelites were. As it was written, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a quote from Exodus when, after God had brought them out from Egypt, Moses went up to the top of the mountain to confer with God, and God gave Moses the law, including the Ten Commandments, the tablets that he would bring down. While he was up there, the Israelite people, you know, they didn't have cell phones. They couldn't text Moses and say, you about finished up up there? Is everything okay? It's been a long time. They didn't know what was going on. And their faith was shaken. And they said, you know, he's been gone a long time. And we need a God who's here to guide us. So they went to Aaron, one of the other leaders, and said, make for us a golden calf to worship. And Aaron did it. So they made an idol. They needed more immediate results than what they were getting from God. And so they made their own little God. It says they ate and drank and they rose up to play. There's a little uncertainty as to what that rose up to play means. Either it means they were just having a grand old time, like a party, or it might mean something more sinister, some promiscuous things going on related to idol worship. Now, the Corinthians were tempted toward idolatry in a different way. They lived in a pagan culture where there were idolatrous pagan temples all over the place with really sensual and physically pleasurable worship practices. And this was the common practice among the Corinthian people. And so they were always tempted into these idolatrous temples. Now, you are most likely not tempted to bow down to a golden figurine of a cow. And you're most likely not tempted to go to a temple that is overtly dedicated To a false God. But the temptation to idolatry is ever present for us. The temptation to idolatry is ever present for us, even if it's more subtle than it was for them. So, for the ancient Israelites, the temptation that led them to idolatry was the desire for more immediate results than they were getting from God. They were waiting for Moses, waiting, waiting, waiting. Nothing seemed to be happening. Let's just make our own God. The temptation for the Corinthians came through the, the desire for more pleasurable worship. And they saw their friends worshiping in a way that was just evidently more physically pleasurable. And they wanted that for themselves. For us, these same temptations may show themselves in a whole variety of ways. And I won't try to catalog them all now. just give you a couple of possible examples. It can show itself in the desire for the approval of people over the desire for God's approval. It can show itself in a quickness to turn to secular psychology for relief from emotional struggles as opposed to the slower route of waiting for the Lord, drawing closer to the Lord. Now, I want to caveat that one and say I do believe there are occasions where that is helpful when there are biological matters involved, but I think we are way too quick to turn to that. I think often we look just like the world that doesn't know God and we turn to things for relief that the world turns to very quickly. It might look like an overindulgence and a devotion to the comfort of entertainment. Our lives are stressful, hectic, busy. We build up the tension in our minds. We just want to veg out. The next thing you know, hours and hours and hours of our lives every week is given to entertaining ourselves and numbing ourselves and comforting ourselves. I think these are all evidence of the temptation toward idolatry, to away from God who can be our comfort and can be our refuge and our, our rock, toward other things that the people who don't know God seek. So the first pitfall, don't be idolaters. The second, in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Let's read verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So here he's referring to an instance that you can read about in the book of Numbers. Where the people of Israel who were not supposed to marry outside of Israel. They were God's encapsulated chosen people. But the Israelites were beginning to intermarry and have relations with Moabites. And these were people who worshipped idols, worshipped false gods. And then they were beginning to bring these Moabite people and practices into their own families and into their own worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And God was furious about it. And he put to death thousands of people because of it, until they put a stop to it and got rid of all the people who were doing this. The pagan practices around the Corinthians, to a great degree, involved sexual perversion, and the Corinthian Christians were embracing a lot of that cultural sexual perversion into their own lives and into their church, if you remember some of the earlier chapters of the book. And we too, we face a great deal of pressure to embrace the sexual perversions of our culture. Whether it's the secret sexual sins of pornography and all that is available to us in the digital world, or whether it's the more open sexual perversions of embracing cohabitation and all of the most likely sins that go with that, or even adultery and Embracing a divorce culture, illegitimate divorce, where there is no adultery, but people just aren't happy anymore. Embracing the language and the ethos of the homosexual agenda. This, this pressure is just going to increase. It's going to increase, increase, increase. And the church is going to be very tempted to just embrace it. But we must not do that, as tempting as it may be. Don't be idolaters. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. And then the third pitfall, it's kind of two, but I think they go together. Verses 9 and 10. We must not put Christ to the test, nor grumble. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. There, there's evidence all through the Old Testament of God's people just being brats, putting Christ to the test and grumbling. And there's evidence in the book of First and Second Corinthians of the Corinthians being brats and doing the same. Psalm 78, you may want to write down and read sometime. It really just outlines the whole history of God's bratty people. And what you see in there is a tendency to be impatient with God, I want God to do it. I want him to do it. I want him to do it right now. A tendency to complain. Man, we had better food than this when we were in Egypt. A tendency to forget what God has done for them. A tendency to be demanding of what they want God to do for, for them. A tendency to just not believe God. Now, for this, as we think about ourselves, I have a quiz. I want you to think about these questions for yourself as an individual, and for us as a church. Do we tend to be patient or impatient when it comes to the things of God? Do we tend to complain or be content when it comes to the things of God? Do we tend to be forgetful or do we tend to remember what God has done for us? Do we tend to be demanding of God, what we want him to do for us, or do we tend to be submissive toward what God wants us to do? Do we tend to be unbelieving, or do we tend to be trusting? See, I think you can feel the tension. We, we, too, are tempted toward testing Christ and grumbling. It's been thousands of years, but the temptations kind of remain the same. Now, you might be saying, well, I'm not an idolater and I don't commit sexual sin, and I don't grumble. Well, again, the whole point of this passage is don't be so sure. And even if that's all true, if you're perfect in regard to these things right now, don't be so sure that later this afternoon you won't fall into any of these things. Because God's people have always been prone to fall into these things. It's a perpetual problem. Israel did it right after the Exodus. The Corinthians were falling into these things while under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You might think the reason you're not a better Christian is because your pastor's Matt Broadway with all of his limitations. You could have the Apostle Paul ministering to you and still fall into these things. So we certainly can fall into these things. Which brings us to the final point. First point, even in the best of circumstances, God's people can fall. Second point, let's learn from their examples. And the third and final, let's be careful not to fall. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? That's basically what he goes on to say in verse 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. The the Corinthians thought they were standing. They thought they had it together. And they didn't realize that they already had fallen into all sorts of sin. And I would venture to say, if you feel invulnerable to temptation, if you feel like this isn't an issue for me, I don't get tempted to sin. I can virtually guarantee that you're probably in the grip of all sorts of sins that you just don't realize. So let's be careful not to fall. How? Well, what we're given here in our final verse are some things to believe. So if we would walk out of here resolved to be committed to, to not fall, what God is giving us this morning are some things to believe. Two truths to believe and two promises to believe about temptation. And you might feel like, I don't want things to believe, I want a strategy I want a 10-step strategy, or even better, like a three-step strategy for how to defeat this sin that keeps plaguing me. Well, God doesn't give us that here. He gives us things to believe. But I tend to think that if we can believe these things down to our hearts, strategies will follow naturally. So the first truth to believe regarding temptation. Your temptation is common, I had you pull up a temptation in your mind, on on the screen of your mind. That temptation is common. Whatever it is, I don't even know what it is, but I can tell you, based on God's word, it's common. Your temptation is common. Beginning in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There really is no temptation that's not new or unusual. That God's people have not dealt with for centuries. And you're not the only one experiencing it, probably even in this room. See, I think our enemy likes to lie to us and make us think well, yeah, I know everybody struggles with temptation to sin, but mine is uniquely embarrassing. I know everybody struggles, but my temptation's different. I am unique. And so I have to keep it to myself because nobody's going to understand. And so then we keep our struggle with temptation and sin secret. And it's the perfect trap because sin is like mold. It thrives in the darkness. And if we were to build a strategy just based on this one truth, it would be share it with somebody. If you're really in the grips of a temptation or a pattern of sin in your life, one of the best steps you can take is go to a faithful, mature Christian friend and say, listen, I need your prayer support. I am really struggling with this. You don't, and you, you must not walk alone in your battle against sin. We are built to do this together. And I assure you, your temptation is common. Whatever it is. Second truth to believe First one, your temptation is common. The second one, your God is faithful. Your God is faithful. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. That means God is reliable, God is dependable. Now, you and I, in terms of withstanding temptation and avoiding sin, we're not really that reliable, we're not really that dependable. Our willpower only takes us so far. But God is faithful. God is dependable. God is reliable. When we are feeling that gravitational shift toward a sin that is too tempting for us, we don't need to then rely on our own dependability. We need to rely on God's dependability. And that brings us to the two promises No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful in the first promise he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability god always limits the temptation to what we can handle now if you're like me your your honest reaction has to be i don't think so that does not ring true in my personal experience And yet here it is in God's word. He doesn't allow his children to be tempted beyond their ability. Now, how can that be true when, I think if we're all honest, it really doesn't seem true in our experience. Well, I think the second promise may help us understand it. I think the first promise, God always limits the temptation of what we can handle, is true because of the second promise. God always provides an escape hatch. God always provides an escape hatch. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. With the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape. You've probably seen these escape rooms popping up all over and groups go to these team building exercises for work or youth groups go. We were gonna go as a youth group, but it fell through. You go and it's a... a, room and is set up with a theme and there's some instructions and the group in there has to work together to figure out how to escape. Now, why is this escape room thing fun and not terrifying? Because everybody knows they're going to get out of there. There's not, usually, there's not anybody involved who actually thinks, oh no, we may be trapped in here forever. If so, then it would be terrifying and overwhelming, but no, we all, everybody knows this is temporary we will get out one way or the other. Even if we can't figure it out, some employee is going to come and open up the door eventually and we'll get out. Well, God is telling us that temptation works basically the same way. With the temptation, he always provides an escape hatch. There's always a way out. And this is what enables us to endure temptation. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Knowing that God is not absent from the temptation situation, but he's promised to keep it within the realm of what you can handle and to give you a way out, enables you to endure it. It makes me think of when I had braces. I don't know if you have ever had braces um, for me, it was an agonizing experience, especially when I had to go to the orthodontist and he had to get in there up to his elbows with all those mechanisms and all that metal and all his tools and wrench things around, hitting my gums. I, I think I had a bad orthodontist. And I remember sitting there in that chair and the apparatus in my mouth, ma- making it stretch open. And I remember it, what the ceiling tile looked like. I could make pictures out of the the shapes of the the... Texture of the ceiling tile. And it it was awful. But what made it endurable was I knew eventually, even if it's another hour, I'm going to get out of this chair, he's going to extract his arms from my mouth, and I'm going to be able to leave so I can endure. See, often when we're in the throes of temptation, I think we buy the lie that it's just always going to feel like this until I give in so I might as well give in. But no, God provides a way of escape. And so you can endure in the meantime while you're looking for it. You can endure. Based on God's word, that's what he tells us. If we will remember these truths and these promises, we'll be able to endure temptation without falling. And that's his reminder to the Corinthians and to us today. But I I feel like I need to end with the good news. Because Christianity isn't really based on good advice, it's based on good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. Because I know something else about you. I told you at the beginning, I know that you all struggle with the temptation to sin. Well, I know something else about you too, and this is even worse. I know that you've all given in. I know that you've all sinned. Maybe, probably, today. And I know it for the same reason, because the Bible tells us that everybody has sinned and fallen short. Everybody except Jesus Christ. See, God knows our situation and he loves us. He knows our propensity to fall into sin. And he knew that we didn't just need some good advice on how to stay strong, that we needed a savior. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he alone lived the perfect life that we have failed to live. And he died on the cross, we remembered it at Good Friday, in payment for all the guilt that we have accrued with our failures here and our sin. And then he arose in the resurrection, proving it all to be true. And everybody that will trust and follow him is freed from the grip of sin, is freed from the guilt of sin, is freed from the filth of sin. Our records are wiped clean. We receive the perfect record of Jesus Christ. We are welcomed by God the Father, as his son, his daughter, fully embraced, fully loved. Mercy and grace and love lavished upon us, not because we're so good at living in light of First Corinthians chapter 10, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so I want to land on a passage from Hebrews. And this is really remarkable as we've been thinking about our own experience with temptation. Now, this is probably something that you've heard but I want to make sure you remember it as we close this sermon. Jesus Christ was tempted. In fact, it says he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Hebrews chapter four, beginning at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we land here acknowledging our frailty, acknowledging our past, our history of falling into temptation and sin, acknowledging the, the fact that we could, we're vulnerable even today, be swept up into the temptation to sin. But praise God through Jesus Christ, we have open access to God himself, and we can go to him with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us today, so practical, so helpful, so loving, so kind, so gracious, so merciful, yet so firm and clear Lord, I pray that you would help us remember that we are, each and every one of us, vulnerable to the temptation to sin. Help us to learn from the example of those who've gone before us, not to desire evil. Help us to work together to be careful not to fall. Help us to live in light of the truth that our temptations are common, that we're not alone in the struggle. Help us to live in light of the truth that you are faithful And help us to lay claim to the promises that you will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability and that you always provide a means of escape. And above and beyond all, thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Help us to live in light of who we are in him. In Jesus' name, amen.